Kind World is sponsored by American Public Media, presenting the podcast, The Slowdown. The Slowdown offers five minutes of calm every weekday. One of the most celebrated poets of our time, host Tracy K. Smith, provides insight and poetry that offers a few moments of reflection. Listen to The Slowdown wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot of competition to be the first headline or Google result. If you want to go deeper, try on Second Thought. It's a weekly podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting, hosted by me, Virginia Prescott. We talk with innovative thinkers, hip-hop legends, pecan farmers, and agents of change who just may make you rethink what it means to be second. Subscribe to On Second Thought for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Produced by the iLab at WBUR, Boston. Welcome to Kind World. I'm Andrea Aswahi. And I'm Yasmin Ammer. We learned from a young age that sometimes even our smallest actions can make a big difference. But it's not always easy to see that. This week, we've got a story about how small but powerful acts of kindness shaped and connected the lives of two women. In Connie Sorman's family, birthdays were always extra festive. We always had a celebration with our family, with cake and a special dinner. And uh, we just really tried to make it a, a big celebration. For Connie, there was one birthday that always stood out. The one she calls her momiversary, the day she became a mother. It was the birthday of her oldest son, Brandon, the first of the six kids in her blended family. Brandon's birthday was February 2nd. He was born in 1992. But 25 years after that day, it would be a stranger, not Connie, who would be celebrating with Brandon. In early 2017, Nancy Canali was in Miami for a work conference. As she was walking back to her hotel after a late dinner, she noticed a young man walking straight toward her. He just said, hey, I was wondering if you would mind helping me get something to eat. Nancy's instinct was to help. So she asked if he wanted to walk to a nearby grocery store. As they walked, the stranger told Nancy he was from New York and that he'd grown up in foster care because his parents were addicted to drugs. He also said he'd lost his ID, which is why he was living on the streets. He had told me his name was Brandon when I first met him on the street. Nancy later learned his full name. Brandon wrote, Connie's son. I, I think I asked him how old he was. I think that's when he told me, well, I'm 25, and actually it's my birthday. I just turned 25. Nancy and Brandon spent about half an hour at the grocery store. As they were leaving, Brandon told Nancy he was sleeping at a park and hadn't showered in a few days. Before I even could think better of it, I just said, hey, you know, I have an idea. If you'd like to take a shower in my hotel room, my hotel's right by here. You could come back with me, and I'll just stay outside and, you know, give you a chance to do that. And um, he said, I, I remember what he said. He said, oh, that would be amazing. Once they got to the hotel, Nancy gathered some valuables. Brandon was a stranger, after all. And then handed Brandon her room key while she waited in the hallway. 
I remember he walked out and he walked toward me and I looked up at him and I said, oh, wow, look at you, you know, and he just beamed. He smiled, such a big smile, and I could tell that it really had done him a world of good. Their final conversation was brief. We exchanged phone numbers and he said, I'm going to call you when I get a job to let you know that everything worked out. That was like the last thing he said besides thank you. When Nancy returned to her home in Orlando, she looked Brandon up on Facebook and sent him a friend request, hoping that she could check in on him. A few weeks passed, and then Nancy got an alert. Brandon had accepted her request. And um, I thought, this is great. You know, he's back on social media. Maybe his you know life is starting to come together. That was my first thought. <clears throat> but that wasn't what it was. The first thing I saw was this very moving obituary written by his mother. Brandon wrote, age 25, left this world on February 13th in Miami, Florida, after an accidental overdose. This is Connie, Brandon's mother. Brandon fought bravely through an eight-year battle with addiction. If only his love for life had equaled his love for himself, he would still be here with us, where he should be. His passion for nature and being one with the earth, whether exploring a forest... Brandon was my firstborn son. He was a very spirited child, <laughs> very smart, almost too smart for his own good. And he was super funny. He made people laugh all the time. But he also had a little bit of an oppositional streak. And as he grew older, that oppositional streak got Brandon into trouble. He started using drugs and acting out in school. The situation escalated when Brandon was 17. He was arrested because his stepmother had an order of protection against him, even though he was living in the same house. He was in the house, and she came home, and she had him arrested. Connie convinced the judge to send Brandon to a behavioral and substance use treatment center in Utah instead of jail. Brandon was there less than a year before he moved back to New York. It was just a constant circle of rehab, drugs, jail, rehab, drugs, jail. That's when professionals told Connie that it was time for her to let 18-year-old Brandon find his own way. It goes against every instinct that a mother has to not be able to do whatever it takes to take care of their children. And I had to try to sleep at night knowing that he was out in the cold. Connie tried to keep in touch with Brandon, even though she didn't see him during his last two years of life. They would talk on the phone often. Sometimes those calls would go well, but other times Brandon would lash out. He'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and Connie said Brandon's mania was often exacerbated by his drug use. On his 25th birthday, Brandon, who was now living in Miami, reached out to Connie. He texted me during the day on his birthday and told me that he was severely depressed and it was the worst birthday ever. 
She spoke to Brandon one more time, just a few days later. He didn't tell her about Nancy. And then, silence. 20 days later, she still hadn't heard from her son. And his father called me on the night of the 28th and told me that the sheriff had come to his home and told him that Brandon was in the morgue in Miami, that he'd been there for two weeks. Brandon's body was found in a highway underpass, a block from the police station. The cause of death was an overdose, but Connie says the heroin found in his system was laced with fentanyl and carfentanyl, a large animal tranquilizer 10,000 times stronger than morphine. The combination is fatal. Weeks later, Connie accessed Brandon's Facebook account and accepted all of his outstanding friend requests. That's when she heard from a woman in Orlando, Nancy Canali. Connie, I can't tell you how sorry I am to hear about Brandon. I am so very sorry for your loss. I met Brandon in Miami, where I was attending a conference. He approached Nancy shared with Connie the story of how she and Brandon met and how she provided a meal and a hot shower to her son. Hearing that he had had this encounter with a stranger was just so incredibly comforting to me. Connie and Nancy finally met in Orlando two years after their first interaction. When Nancy thinks back on that day, she says she's so grateful she stopped and listened to the polite stranger who approached her on the streets of Miami. That is not the way I would normally respond. But for whatever reason, I made an exception. And um, I'm just really glad I did. Since Connie couldn't be there for her son, she's found solace knowing Nancy stood in for her, providing Brandon with small but meaningful comfort. She says Nancy's compassion has brought her tremendous peace when she thinks of her son's final days. She restored my faith in human beings in general. Because so many people did not see everything I knew about my son. And she was a stranger and she saw it. We'll be back with more Kind World after the break. In San Diego and Tijuana, where I live, there's already a big wall. But it's not just a barrier. Here we have a church that meets at the actual border fence. On the Mexico side, we have people visiting their friends, their relatives from the U.S. side. And this ability to experience the blend of two worlds, it inspires us. Being in a place where I can cross a line and be in a world that is profoundly different from the one that I woke up in makes the synapses in my brain go off on a level that I really enjoy and I want to take advantage of as much as possible. I'm Alan Liliental, host of Only Here, a sonic exploration of life at the U.S.-Mexico border. Get Only Here on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Welcome back to Kind World. I'm Yasmin Ammer. And I'm Andrea Aswahe. 
So Yasmin, it was such an honor to speak with Connie and Nancy and to tell Brandon's story. And I think it's especially important right now as our country continues to endure this opioid crisis and as more and more people are forced into homelessness. It's essential that we remember every person, regardless of how they ended up in these really tough, unfortunate circumstances, they all have a story and they have family and people who love them. You know, and that's what one of our favorite classic Kind World stories is all about. Seeing each person as a human being and knowing that we all deserve respect, dignity, and love. Here's producer Erica Lance with our story, The Little Giant, which originally aired in 2016. You never forget your first night without a bed. Just ask Curtis Bishop. The first night is the hardest night. I found myself sitting on a bunch of steps in front of, I think it was a bank. (laughs) And when I realized that it's three o'clock in the morning and you've got absolutely nowhere to go. Before I was homeless, uh, I was an accountant. I was the type of person that really didn't even like to get dirt under my fingernails. Curtis grew up in a small town in Newfoundland, so small that he didn't encounter a homeless person until he was in his 20s. I looked at homeless people and and my first instinct was to point a finger and try to blame them with my nose held high. What he did experience early on was mental illness. I've been depressed, I think, since my teenage years. This led to a lot of drinking, a lot of drug use. My life just spiraled out of control. He was in his 30s with a failed marriage and stealing money from his job. He was broke. He felt he had to leave town. That's when he found himself alone on those steps. Your first night there, you just sort of find a piece of ground and you just lie on it. You stare up into the blackness and wonder what you're doing there. You assume that it's just a temporary thing and everything's going to be fine tomorrow. Just get through the night. But one night turned into two, turned into a month, turned into years. He slept in parks, over grates, in basements, Then he found a box spring on the street and leaned it against a wall for cover. At night, he tied his feet in a discarded child's hoodie to keep them warm. But even that shelter couldn't protect him. I'm in my lean-to in Ottawa, and uh, I remember hearing the noise, and it took a while for me to figure out that this was water or some kind of a liquid coming down. At first, I thought it was probably rain, and then realized after a while, when you can hear the voices, what's going on, and... uh, a couple of young guys are coming home at the end of the night. They see my lean-to, my uh, box spring, and they decide this is going to be their target for urinating. And I turned around to crawl out of the lean-to, sort of stuck half my body out, and I was about to say something. When I opened my mouth, I just, I just growled at them. Arr! It scared them a lot. It scared me even more. My words didn't even work anymore. By now, homelessness felt like a fixed identity to Curtis. He found some comfort in small routines. Each day at noon, he walked to a mall in Ottawa full of office workers on lunch break. He'd stand on a platform near the food court and look for people standing to leave. The secret was to get that tray of food before the cleaners got there, eat what I could, and then I would bust that table and make sure it was left nice and tidy and then go back to the little platform out front and uh, start hunting again. One day, it was a Tuesday, Curtis noticed that he was being watched. He worried that the man watching him would complain to management. But instead, 
he saw that the man had left something at his table. The table had been wiped down and the place was set with, you know, a knife on one side and a fork on the other and water and napkins. And a full plate of fresh, hot food. I was very surprised the next Tuesday. He showed up again and I watched him and I watched him and I watched him. The man did the same thing. He wiped down the same table, set it, and walked away. And he just stood there and watched and made sure I got what he had left for me. He served me with a great deal of respect and dignity. It helped me with wanting to be a person again, I think. Because this person who I look at with great respect has some respect for me, then maybe I need to have some respect for myself. I realized I wasn't invisible anymore. They never spoke, but once they caught each other's eye from across the room. We looked and we both nodded at each other and that was our communication. The ritual went on for months until one day, Curtis didn't show up. He didn't need to. The man's gesture had been the push he needed to finally get help. He got on welfare and never saw the man again. I call him my little giant because he was a short man, but in my mind, he was a, a giant among men, giant among people. Curtis Bishop lives in Toronto now, where he has a job and a home. He says when he's struggling with a decision, he asks himself, what would my little giant do? He'd love to meet his little giant again and take him out for lunch. So if you're out there, reach out. That was former Kind World producer Erica Lance. Next week on Kind World... It started out with a simple soccer game and ended with a powerful movement in education. And it was just beautiful. Like, I'll sit back and, like, see that image of him, you know, standing up in front of a group of kids and mentoring them and guiding them and coaching them. And it's, it's beautiful to see. That's next week on Kind World. Kind World is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station. Paul Vikas and Matt Reed do our sound design. Sophie Eisenberg is our WBUR fellow. Catherine Brewer is our managing producer and editor. And Iris Adler is our executive producer. I'm reporter and producer Andrea Aswahi. And I'm reporter and producer Yasmin Amr. Be sure to follow us on Instagram for more from this week's episode and a behind-the-scenes look at our show. We're at WBUR Kind World. And remember, this Friday, we'll have another listener voicemail dropping in your feed, so you can start your weekend off right with our Friday Moment of Kindness. If you have a story, call 617-353-6350 and leave us a voicemail. That's 617-353-6350. Thanks for listening. See you next week.